You're listening to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast, Kentucky's weekly racing discussion. And now, here are your hosts, C.C. Broadus, Alan Schneider, and Brandon Jaggers. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Auxiliary Gate Podcast. I'm C.C. Broadus. And I'm joined by my partner in crime, Alan Schneider. How's it going, everybody? We got a special guest today we're really excited about. If the words legend, pioneer come to mind, you'll see what we're talking about here in a second. And Brandon Jaggers is on assignment. I have no idea where he's at, but we we miss him and we want him back soon. So uh, let's talk the about the Serengeti or something. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, world traveler, something like that. But anyway, we miss him. Uh, so let's talk about the weekend that was, uh, last weekend's Keeneland card was highlighted by the Queen Elizabeth II Challenge Cup, and it was won by my selection, Harvey's Little Goyle, in a very, very nice effort. I am remiss in reporting that I did not make a dime on the race, though. So it was bittersweet victory for me, but Alan, uh, your thoughts on the victory, the grade one victory of Harvey's Little Goyle. Yeah, well, we did like that horse last week, and I, I made a little more than you did. I, I made a little more than nothing. Uh, I, I, as, as high as you've been on that horse for a while, it's a shame you didn't clock clock the race. But uh, I thought the race was over when they got out of the gate. When when Harvey's Little Goyle got out second behind uh, Sweet Melania, who ran a little poorer than I thought she would, but that was the trip I wanted Harvey's Little Goyle to get and because if, if Sweet Melania tucked in at any point in the race. Uh, coming out of the mile in 5-16th race at Kentucky Downs. Harvey's little goal is going to have plenty left in the tank. And it's a lot easier chasing home Sweet Melania than it is Swiss Skydiver, which Harvey has done in the past. So I thought it was a good win, and uh, that horse has a bright future on the turf, that filly. Yeah, she's a daughter of American Pharaoh, so, you know, any distance should be okay with her. I think, you know, she looks like the type of filly might be able to go mile and a half next year. She yeah. might see her this time next year, maybe one of the Breeders' Cup races uh, going long. So looking forward to that. Uh, and then we have to talk about the Fayette Stakes, and that was won by Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze finally returned to form after after really two disappointing efforts uh, prior to that. Mr. Freeze was very impressive. May see him in the Bruiser Cup Mile, Dirt Mile. Yeah, I could see that definitely, definitely. And you know, and I think uh, we need to point out in that race. Uh, the runner-up, Aurelia Garland, had a really funky Aurelia trip. Maximus. Aurelia, Aurelia, Aurelia Maximus had a really funky trip. Uh, he was up, really? up, up, on the, up on the lead, and then he was wrangled back a little bit, lost position, wound up wide into the stretch, and uh, you know he, he made up ground to finish second there, and, and, and it was a nice effort. I think uh, if he goes in the Breeders' Cup dirt mile, you have to consider him as much as you would Mr. Freeze. Yeah, he, was, he, was, he had the wide draw from the 10 hole, and he was up close. And it was bizarre to see. He just kind of stopped running for a second. I'm not really sure what happened for more than a few seconds. And then came again at a, at a classy horse like Mr. Freeze. And I thought he might run him down for a bit. But to Mr. Freeze's credit, he was wide a bit, too. And he, he bounced back real nice. I believe Mr. Freeze ran second in the race last year to uh, Tom's Day Taw, which is, uh, which is no slouch. And so it's good to see Mr. Freeze back in the win column. I thought some other horses in it ran well. But the top two, I think, were the best in the race. 
Uh, one horse I, we probably need to talk about, and I, uh, for the life of me, I can't remember what day you're in. I think he did run on Saturday. It was Nick's go, who absolutely throttled a, a, an average bunch of horses, but he oh did it God. at a track record time. I I think, uh, speaking of the dirt mile, I think if this horse could get into the race, I think he's got a big, big chance to win as long as he doesn't regress off that giant effort. He's got a big, big chance to win and a big, big chance to bounce because – I mean, he would have beat Air Force One that day. Uh, I mean, the horse got an easy lead and looked to figure, my God, he cruised. Uh, he really appreciates the uh, the stable of uh, Brad Cox, apparently. All right, so uh, we'll get into our selections a little bit later in the, in the podcast. Uh, but first, we want to uh, introduce our special guest. Our next guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to try to do her justice anyway. She has horse racing in her blood, as her mother, Patty, was a pioneer in the game becoming one of the first women to receive a jockey's license in the U.S. in 1969. Our guest walked in her mother's footsteps, becoming a jockey in 1987, riding for 11 years successfully. Uh, During her riding stint, she won 1,171 races, but maybe the most memorable finish was a runner-up finish aboard Hennessy behind Unbridled Song in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. When she retired in 1998, she retired as the second leading female rider in the country in terms of purse money won. Ironically, her retirement from the saddle was just beginning as a new career unfolded, being a, an on, on horseback uh, reporter for NBC Sports covering the Triple Crown events. But in, in addition to that important role, she also serves as the chief operating officer for Starlight Racing. She's involved in many thoroughbred-related charities. She's an author, and she also has a, an acting credit for the International Movie Database. <laughs> We're related to be joined by Donna Barton Brothers. How are you, Donna? I'm well. I totally, wow, you, you hit me with Dreamer right there at the very end, and <laughs> you surprised me. That's hey, let's my talk, acting credit. Let's talk about your acting. How, how did that go? Was that uh, what well, you Well, you know, I, I, first of all, it was this far-fetched role of me playing an on-track reporter on horseback, so how I managed to dream up, you know, any sort of a role model for that, I have no idea, <laughs> but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um I actually thought about turning it down because I was in college at the time. It sounds like it was when I was way younger, but I went to college late in life. I want to say that was like 2003 or four. And uh, I just was really busy with school. And I was like, you know what? This will be fine. I'll study while I'm over there. If I miss a class, I miss a class. But they filmed it over at Keeneland. And it was so much fun. It was just, uh, yeah, to just see how they do things on the set. Um, I think we... Maybe we did two takes of that, but it wasn't because either one of them was bad. They always like to have a safety one. And yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Did you ever think about, uh, you know, acting as a profession after that? No, because I played a role of Donna Barton Brothers. <laughs> okay, I, <got laughs> if I would have played the role of, you know, Dakota Fanning and nailed it or the role of Reese Witherspoon and nailed it, then maybe, but no, I did, I did not. All right. <laughs> Well, I need you to refresh my memory. Uh, do you have a, any recollection of riding a horse named Zackety Zack in the mid 1990s? <laughs> uh, there's a chiropractor. He's a friend of. Uh, it was a friend of the family. He's named Beeman Derringer, and he trained a horse. I think he, he either owned or trained the horse Zackety Zack. And I listened to it on the radio. He told us the horse was going to win. Uh, and I think this was a milestone victory for you at Churchill. Do you? Is that right? Does that sound right? Uh- so um, I looked it up, to be honest. That was in 1995. It was actually June 30th of 1995, and the horse won and paid $64, went uh, wire to wire. I actually wired the field and won by five. And, uh, yeah, the, the heavy favorite was ridden by 
Pat Day uh, finished second. Um, the horse's name was Coach's Image and was trained by um, Peter Vestal. But no, I, I don't really have a recollection of it. I looked it up and I was like, well, that looks like fun. Um, but I would love to know what the milestone was. Yeah, I thought it was a, a, a maybe 100 victories at Churchill or something like that. I, I, it was something special, but I, I don't remember. I don't remember. All I can remember is uh, Dr. Derringer told us that the horse was going to win. He was going to get claimed. And we should be there to bet on him. Of course, we didn't go, but we listened to the race on the radio. And it, it was uh, Dr. Derringer probably had a lot to do with my father and and I getting in in, in more involved into the into the racing industry for sure. So uh, he was he, right on both counts, by the way. That horse was claimed for twenty five thousand dollars that day. Twenty five. Okay, I was thinking it was seventeen five. That okay. That yeah. I, okay. That that's cool. That's cool. I, I'm glad you remember a little bit of, about it. So uh, uh, Donna. Let's talk about the at the Kentucky Derby Museum. The they have a, a new exhibit. It's called the Right to Ride. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, um, they coincided it uh, with the 100 year anniversary of the Right to Vote for Women. So that's why they called it the Right to Ride. And it was also the 50 year anniversary of um, Diane Crump's first ride in the Kentucky Derby. So it was appropriate. And um, I haven't actually seen it yet because of COVID. Uh, tomorrow is uh, actually their grand opening. And I'm going to be part of the ribbon cutting ceremony with my mother, Patty Barton, Patty Cooksey, uh, Barbara Jo Rubin will be there. And they, they will have a live audience. And I know um, there'll be some other female jockeys there. But I, I, from what I've seen of it so far, it looks like they've done a really, really good job with it. And I know from talking with um, Jessica Whited, who's the curator of the exhibit, she wanted to be able to include so many more of the female jockeys, the pioneers, but you know, it's, it's just one museum and there's so many great stories to be told, um, but they picked out the best, the, the ones that they thought were the best anyway. And I, it looks like a great exhibit from what I've seen so far. So let's talk about the, the landscape for female jockeys and female trainers and, and, and female executives for that matter in, in the industry. Do you, do you think the landscape's, change since maybe you retired is it is it easier for a for a female jockey to, to break in or is it harder or, or where, where do you land on that well see see here's what i've seen in the last um 20 years um i've heard a lot of people say you know you just don't see too many female jockeys coming up anymore you, the other thing you don't see is any american male jockeys coming up because we don't have an agrarian society anymore and so when i was growing up not only did i ride horses all the time all my friends rode, rode horses you know i was part of the ffa um, we went to horse shows, uh, but now the kids who ride horses are the ones who are well-to-do, and typically it ends up being the girls who love the horses and, and want to ride the horses, and then, you know, the, again, they're, they're well-heeled, they have money, and their parents insist that if they want to be a jockey, that's fine, but you have to go to college first, and luckily they're smart enough after going to college to not revert back <laughs> to being a jockey, <laughs> and meanwhile, while this is happening, the other thing that we've lost a little bit of in America is our middle class track. So we have lower level and we have upper level. We don't have a lot of middle level. So I started off in Birmingham, inaugural turf club um, year there. Um, I, and then I rode at Rockingham Park and then I went to Canterbury. And, you know, same with people like Mike Smith, who, who started at Rito. So when it was a middle class, it wasn't a lower class track. Um, 
uh, Jerry Bailey started in El Paso. Julie Crone started at Tampa Bay Downs. And so we've lost a little bit of that. And simultaneously, these Latino countries have phenomenal jockey schools. And they are making jockeys who are far more polished than anything we're able to create in, an, in, in, a, in a country that is no longer an agrarian society and also doesn't really have stepping stones for, for these jockeys to start off at a lower level, then go to the middle level and get to the higher level. And so I think that's why we've seen the change more than anything to do with gender. I think it has more to do with all of that. So there are no riding schools in America, right, anymore? Did Chris McCarran fold his? Well, the North American, uh, it used to be called the North American Riding Academy, and it was based at the Kentucky Horse Park, and it's now called the North American Racing Academy. And they've decided that what they're trying to create is, um, you know, I think they, you, if you graduate, you get its degree. So it's a two-year program. And I think they're trying to educate people a little bit better, a little bit more formally in the, the whole uh, kit and caboodle of horse racing. So whether you want to be a trainer, an assistant trainer, a jockey, a exercise rider, you can go there. Again, this goes back to us not having an agrarian society anymore because it used to be easy to step onto the racetrack work your way up from being a hot walker to a groom to an exercise rider. And it's just not that easy anymore because a lot of these people who come onto the racetrack new have never ridden horses. Wow. I didn't thought that. Yeah. Right. So, so let's, uh, let's switch gears for a bit. Let's talk about starlight racing and star ladies racing. I know you, you're a part of that organization. Can you talk about your relationship with them and, and what exactly, uh, what, what exactly you do with uh, those partnerships? I bet they ask every now and then too, Donna, what exactly do you do? <laughs> so um, it started because my husband buys horses for them. So when he retired in 2009, Frank Brothers, obviously, when he retired in 2009 from training, um, it happened to be a time when they were in need of a blood, bloodstock agent. And so Jack Wolf, who's the managing partner of Starlight Racing, called Frankie and said, would you be interested in buying horses for us? And so... For a couple of years, Jack asked me to come to work for them uh, to just help sort of in the promotion of Starlight Racing and then also, um, you know, to, to help a little bit in the um, re- client recruitment. And, and I just kept saying, no, 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 I'm not interested in another job. I'm good. And then one day I asked him, OK, so what happens if somebody approaches you and says, hey, I'm interested in joining Starlight Racing. You're at the track and they run into you. He says, well, I tell them to call me. And I said, you give them your business card. He said, no, I don't have a business card. And I said, so your number's on the website? He said, no, I don't think my number's on the website. And I was like, all right, fine. I'll take the job because I really like them. It's really a great, that group of people starts with Jack and Lori Wolf. They are fans of horse racing first. They're fans of the horse second. So they do the right thing by the horse, even in the aftercare. Um, They do shoot uh, for the, for the stars though. I mean, they want to race on the very high end and they're not afraid to run horses for a claiming price. They're not going to fit into that program. And, and people who like to play the claiming game, you know, will claim those horses. But the, on the back of the full papers, on all of their horses, it says if this horse ever needs a good home, contact Starlight Racing and gives the information. And so at the end of the day, it just came down to that I really liked the way that they were protecting the partner's interests um, and what they were doing and, and what they were aiming to achieve. And Jack and Lori are the least judgmental people I've ever been around. And so that has a trickle down effect to all the partners. And so 
There's no snideness. There's no rudeness. A lot of the partners are wealthy type A personalities, and they just don't get away with being pushy or bossy in our group. They just have to be nice. <laughs> do you, off the top of your head, do you have an idea of maybe what, like what, what would an initial investment be for a share with Starlight or what would you expect out of that share? So first of all, we don't sell a piece of a horse. We sell a piece of the crop. And so this year we bought 34 yearlings for the Starlight Racing Partnership. About 25% of those horses are Starlight Racing only, and the other 75% are in partnership with SF Racing, which is the same partnership group that we had Justify with, with um, Charlatan, Eight Rings. And so um, you have to own a percentage of the, of the whole entire crop. And so just at the ground level to, to, you know, to buy a unit to be, uh, it would bring you in, I think at about 5% and we don't sell percentages anymore either because people get caught up on the percentages, but just at that level, it's 200,000 to $250,000. So it's not cheap. It's for people who want to play at the high end. But this year we had three of those horses in the crop that we bought, um, two years ago who have already been syndicated as stallions, uh, eight rings, charlatan, and authentic. And so as expensive as it sounds, that crop's already paid for itself and our partners have made money. And so, and, and they also got to win the Kentucky Derby. And so if you can play at that end, if you can afford it, it's a great way to do it. But, you know, I couldn't afford it. Most people can't afford it, but the people who can't afford it and have been involved have enjoyed it. That's riding around money for Alan. Uh, Alan, do <laughs> you, you have any questions for, uh, for Donna? Oh, of course I do. Uh, you know, Donna, the, the post-race interviews that you do on horseback for NBC, I think ESPN in the past, they're now commonplace. I know Maggie Wolfendale does them in New York. Were you the first to do that, or were, were there someone before you do that? No, um, Charles C. Canny was the first oh, that's to do right. it. Yeah. yeah, and when I was hired by NBC, Charles C. had made her way from ABC to NBC because NBC had won the rights to the Kentucky Derby, and we were lucky enough to get Charles C. to come over from ABC to NBC as well. And she was a real mentor. I mean, she was the pioneer in that, and she was a mentor for me. She was always available for any questions that I had and, and gave me great advice. Same with Tom Hammond and Mike Battaglia, but she was the one who pioneered that role as a reporter on horseback. I never did actually do any, um, any, uh, I did one show for ESPN when I first got started before I worked for NBC, but I wasn't on horseback. The, um, on track reporter for ESPN in the past 20 years has always been Kate and Bradar. And she has the unfortunate as she had, I should say the unfortunate assignment of always having to interview the beaten favorite. And so they would let Jerry Bailey from, the host stand through the outrider's microphone, talk to the winning jockey. And I told that Kate, is and true. A friend, yeah, I told Kate and, I, and she's a, a good friend of mine. I was like, Oh my God, Kate. And that was a no win situation. So yes. I feel badly for her, but, and I also think Maggie does a great job. That's definitely the hardest working, working woman in racing. I've got a lot of respect for Maggie. Yeah. So, so how does that work? When, when the race goes off, where are you at? What, What's the trick to that? We just see you show up with the winner afterwards, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. What's what's the strategy involved with that? It depends on the distance of the race, but let's say that it's the mile and a quarter Kentucky Derby. The quickest way for me to get to them is to go the wrong way of the racetrack. So I need to be um, on the track watching the horses warm up and start to load into the gate so that if there's anything to report, I'm there to say this is what just happened. 
Um, but as that last horse goes into the gate and they're headed down the track and, and looking at that long stretch, I start making my way around the turn going the opposite direction on my horse at a gallop. And then I go to the outside fence and just stand the outside fence and, and I stop and turn my horse out and let the field pass by me. And then I go back into a gallop and meet him on the backside. Now, if it's a, if it's a three quarter mile race, obviously I'm able to just, you know, stay there on the backside right. and wait for them. If it's a mile in a 16th race, I follow the field away from the starting gate and, and go over. I just try to get there the shortest way possible for my horse. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't think about that until I started thinking we were interviewed and I had never thought about it. So um, I was very interesting. And in that same vein, of all the Kentucky Derby winning jockeys that you've interviewed, it, who stood out to you as the most memorable interview, the most poignant, uh, the most exciting? Anybody stand out in particular? Well, for sure, Calvin Burrell. And I think that's the I one. I knew you were going to say out. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it stands out for everybody. When he won his first Kentucky Derby, it was such a meaningful win for him. And Calvin doesn't know how to do anything but just be his raw emotional self. And he, it, you know, obviously – it, it was the pinnacle of his career. He didn't know he was going to win two more Kentucky Derbies <laughs> in the next three years. But for him at that time, it was the p pinnacle of his career. You know, he's such a so close to his, his mom and dad. He would go home to, um, well, they're from Louisiana, but when he would go to Hot Springs every year, he would spend some time in between. Um, they were in a nursing home at that time and go spend some time and, and take care of them and, and be around them. And, you know, he just really, Really wanted his mom and dad to be there and just talking about his family got him emotional. And then he had such a good relationship with that horse and with Carl Nasker. And so it touched him in so many ways. And we saw we, we were the benefit of we were the beneficiary of that. And we and we got to see, you know, what winning a Kentucky Derby can mean to somebody. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, by the way, I was looking at your website, uh, folks. Donna has a fantastic website called DonnaBrothers.com. And on this website, she, she's an analyst. She's a health expert. She's an author. She's a wine connoisseur. She's a philanthropist. And, oh, yeah, <laughs> she's a great jockey. So I'm guessing either, A, you invented a 29-hour day, or, <laughs> B, there's some way that you find the time to do that. How do you find the time to do all that? Because you are the, uh, the quintessential multitasker. <laughs> well, I will say everybody's pretty um... – so I'm also a strategic advisor for the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition, but everybody understands that my job with NBC comes first. So I work for NBC Sports as a reporter first and foremost. So everybody knows I don't work for anybody Derby Week besides them. And then everything else just seems to fall into line. Uh, the other things I'm able to fit in um, in my time. Now, I will say I, I'm one of those people who has a very sp specific calendar and I have to-do lists every day, and I try to make sure I get to everything. I'm not a procrastinator. Anything I can do today, I don't put off until tomorrow. Um, but there are times, Alan, to be fair, that I, I go like, oh, my God, like this has been such a long week. I'm exhausted, and why am I doing this? And then when I start to ask myself why I do it, it's still important to me, all of it. Like I, I think it's really important to bring – the horse racing into people's living rooms the best way we can. And as long as I feel like I can be a real contributor to that show, I'm going to want to be on it. Same with the strategic advisor position in the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition. They're trying to make racing safer 
so that we don't lose our social license to operate because at the end of the day, we may, if we don't pay closer attention, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, we, we could easily go the way of the whales and the greyhound racing in Florida if we don't get on this. And so if I care about horse racing and, and for everything they've done for me, I owe it to horse racing to get back. Jack and Lori Wolf, Snorlight Racing, I just love those guys. And so, and, and they know that, you know, I do what I can when I can. As far as the wines go, I couldn't drink wine for years. And so when I found these clean crafted wines, um, I, I ordered some and I drank them and I, I actually felt fine drinking these wines. And so for me, I was just like, oh my God, I have to tell everybody about this. And so it was just a passion. And then, you know, when I retired from being a jockey, it, well, I should say when I, when Frankie retired, because I still galloped horses for him. And then he retired in 2009. And I felt like I got my whole morning back. I mean, I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning and be at the track until 10 or 11. And I'm like, I mean, so I could just wake up in the morning when I feel like it and go work out to me, that's easy. <laughs> so, you know, I do my workouts in the morning and I've always eaten healthy. Uh, I attribute that to being a professional athlete. And so it ends up it, it, for me, a lot of it's just the lifestyle and to-do lists. <laughs> Well, you forgot the, the author part too, folks. Donna has a, a book out called Inside uh, Inside Track, Inside Arts Guide to Horse Racing. And all of our listeners like Zach and Rob and Joe Schmidt and Danny, uh, Chris Karam, you guys need to pick this book up and stuff because it's a, it's a heck of a read. And I'm sure, and I think it's been pretty successful for you too, hasn't it? It has been. I first wrote that book in 2011, I think. And then I did the second edition in 2014 to update it. And it probably needs a third edition to be updated again. But, um, it, uh, you know, for the longest time, I used to just say, somebody needs to write a book that makes it easier for first time fans to go to the Amen. track and understand it. Amen. And I kept saying it and nobody would write the book. And so finally, by the time I sat down to write the book, it pretty much wrote itself. I knew every chapter I wanted it to have. I knew what I wanted the chapters to be like. And it was actually a really easy book to write. Cool, cool. All right, CC, your turn with Donna here. Well, before you go, Donna, do you have some time to talk about the Breeders' Cup coming up here in about three weeks? <laughs> of course. We got to talk Breeders' Cup, of course. All right, absolutely. Okay, so uh, we'll just hit on a few races here. And, you know, it's early, and, you know, we don't have post positions or anything like that. But the, I would like to hit on a couple of these races. Uh, first of all, the Classic uh, is probably the, the one with the most storylines. Uh, do you have any opinions on the Classic? Well, you know, can the three-year-olds stack up to the older horses this year? That's a really good question. Um, Happy Saver, who you guys just saw win the uh, Grade 1 Jockey Club Gold Cup last time out, certainly indicated that the three-year-olds are going to be able to fit with these. And he actually could be live in there because how tenacious in the Jockey Club Gold Cup. But, I mean, what a good race it's going to be. When you have horses like Improbable, who's coming off such a big win, Maximum Security, who might have taken a step back. But if Bob Baffert brings him, you know he's going to be a live horse. Tom's de Tab, we haven't seen him run in three months, but two starts back his win in the Stephen Foster. Anybody would have trouble beating him if he could run that kind of a race back. Tis the law, since he ran in the Kentucky Derby, skipped the Preakness Stakes. He's had a 57-4 and four work at Belmont Park, God. which indicates that he's doing amazing because he's not a runoff. Um, yeah, it's just such a deep field. And, and I haven't even talked about our Kentucky Derby winner, Authentic, who has Hall of Fame jockey Johnny Velasquez on him. And you know he's going to work out a trip. It's just an unbelievable race. For me, it's going to come down to seeing how these horses train, um, how they look, how they're, they're holding their weight, how their coats look this late in the year. But, yeah, what a race. Do you guys have any picks yet? <laughs> 
I, I, I got to be honest. You know, I'm I'm pulling for Tom Zaytal. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Of I'd love to see Al Stahl win with a with a seven year old. That'd be that'd be amazing. I I like him and Tiz a lot. To be honest with you, uh, but I mean, you can make a case for six, eight, ten. I'm sure in the upcoming weeks we'll make a case for all of them. Well, one of the things I loved about Improbable was his last race. I don't know yeah. if they were just letting Improbable be Improbable or if they finally let Drayden ride him the way he wanted to ride him. But if he can sit back off the pace, I think he's going to have plenty of pace to sit back off of. And, and he might be favored. I, I would have never said that at the beginning of the year, but Improbable might be right. favored in the Classic. Yeah, he's just gone to the top of the polls lately in the Breeders' Cup Classic polls and also the NTRA polls. So, I mean, it's just such a deep field. Well, I will add, if – well, authentic earned like a negative three on the third graph. And mm. if he doesn't bounce, I mean, that puts him right up there with the top of older horses. If he doesn't bounce off that effort, he's got a huge shot. I mean, he, he look forward to him maybe just getting And out. we didn't even talk about Swiss Skydiver, who might run in there and beat Authentic last well, time out. We're going to get to her in a minute. We, we were thinking maybe she'll go in the distaff. But uh, let's talk about the distaff right now. I mean, it's going to be uh, Monomoy well, Girl versus the world. The other day, I, I will tell you. And he What's said that... that um, I saw Kenny McPeak the other day and, and I asked him which race and he said, you know, I don't have to decide until the last minute because she's one winning your end races for both races. And he said, I think I can enter in both. I think I can. Yeah. And he said, so why wouldn't I just wait until post positions and all that comes out? So he's going to be noncommittal for a while. And I do think her better distance is a mile and a quarter rather Agreed. than a mile and an eighth. Well, let's talk about the uh, the distaff. Uh, if if Swiss Skydiver were to go to the distaff, and she would face uh, Monomoy Girl, the uh, the champion three year old filly from two years ago. Uh, does, mm-hmm. Where does Swiss Skydiver stack up with uh, with a filly like Monomoy Girl? I don't think she can beat her in a mile and an eighth. Now, Monomoy Girl's quirky. Uh, if she makes the lead too soon, she'll pull up. Florangeur says the riding crop doesn't even help a lot with her. Um, she needs to have some pace in front of her. So. If it looks like a good pace is going to set up in front of her, she's going to be unbeatable. But if it doesn't look like a good pace is going to set up in front of her, then uh, then she could be beatable in there. But and Swiss Skydiver could be the horse to beat her. I think Speech is a, a little bit of a sleeper. She had a really tough trip in the Kentucky Oaks, and I think that uh, she could run uh, a much improved race from what we saw in the Kentucky Oaks in the in the distaff. But I mean, that's another deep field. I'll make a note of that. I hadn't really considered speech, but I think I'm going to add her to the. When you go back and look at the race, look at not only the start, but also around the second term where she was just finally starting to make her run and then had to um, take up for a little bit. And then she had to come on again. Okay. We'll make note of that for sure. Uh, Let's talk about the turf a mile and a half. And once again, it looks like the Euros probably tower over our, our bunch here, but with horses like Gayoth and, uh, Magical. I think they were the one-two finishers in the uh, Irish Champion Stakes last time. Of course, that was at ten furlongs. Uh, Donna, your thoughts on uh, on the Euros and and uh, do, do they overshadow our, our guys here? I think they do. Yeah, uh, I went back and looked at a couple of those races. Um, Gaeth actually um, beat Magical in the uh, Judmon International earlier in the year. And so th- these Gaiath and Magical um, are top grade one horses in Europe. I think Magical is going to run in the British Championships, which would mean that that would be two weeks before the Breeders' Cup. But, you know, it's not above Aidan O'Brien to go ahead and just put her on a plane and bring her over here. He brings his own water, his own food and all that. And those horses don't even seem to know that they've traveled anywhere. <laughs> right. um, 
And and Mogul's a, a horse that you need to take a look at though too, because if it does look like it, Gaiath and Magical both actually have a lot of speed for Euros. And so if any of our American horses look like they're gonna make it a really solid pace up front, go back and look at Mogul's last one. Uh, he is a three-year-old Colt, but, um, and, and he's been really hit or miss. And, you know, sometimes he defies his odds and, and that he outruns them. And then other times he doesn't run to his odds. But I think if he has a pace set up in front of him, he could go back to the kind of race that he won last time out in the uh, Judmont Grand Prix in Paris. Um, and, and he could be a little bit of a sleeper in there if he comes over. Any awesome. love for the, the horses like Arclo, United, Zulu Alpha? You think maybe uh, maybe a puncher's Underneath. chance? Um, I, you know, how do you not love Zulu Alpha? He's a seven-year-old who's all hard. He's an $80,000 claim who's made $2.2 million. Uh, Arclo is a six-year-old uh, who has been a really, really um, – I, I would say that he he's definitely been productive. The thing I don't like about Arklow is that he hasn't put two wins together in the past two years, and he comes into this race off of a huge effort when he won the Kentucky Turf Cup. Uh, so I don't think I'm going to like him here no matter what. I would never be able to count Zulu Alpha out, though. And while we wrap up, let's talk about the uh, the, the Friday races. The, 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 the two big horses on the Friday card probably are Jackie's Warrior, for Steve Asmussen and Princess Noor, who'll be shipping in for Bob Baffert for the juvenile fillies. Uh, Jackie's Warrior looks like, well, both both horses look like they could be special. Uh, Princess Noor is a little bit light on her figures, but man, she's been just just destroying her competition. Uh, what, what, you got any thoughts on the uh, the two juvenile races on dirt? Yeah, I could talk more about the juvenile than the juvenile fillies. I haven't really studied that race that much yet. But, um, yeah, I think Jackie's Warrior is definitely the horse to beat. He's 4-4. Four, four, four for four. He's won every race by open lengths. He's going to be the overwhelming favorite. Uh, I think a horse that maybe to uh, – probably will be second choice, actually, is essential quality. He's two for two, and he's got a win at Keeneland in the grade one Claiborne Breeders for charity. But I think a horse that – you might get a little price on a sit-and-on-go. Uh, he's another undefeated horse, two-for-two. Two. He was impressive when he won the grade three Iroquois Stakes last time out. And granted, that was a grade three, but he is by Brody's cause out of a more-than-ready mare. And the Iroquois Stakes was a one-turn mile. His first win at Alice Park was at five furlongs. And this horse runs like an old pro. He comes from off the pace. He goes on the inside. He eats all kinds of dirt. And so I think, it, especially if it looks like there's going to be a solid pace and you're looking for somebody to beat the favorites, you got to look at sitting on go. You got to look at his races anyway. Okay, Alan, do you have anything you want to add? Well, didn't Brody's calls win the Bluegrass at Keeneland too? If I'm not mistaken, was, it, he did. was that he right? Did. Yeah. Uh, this is where I, this is where I go. I've had seven concussions. I can't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I lean on CC with this stuff. Trust me. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you there. The uh, Jackie's Warrior and Essential uh, Quality, especially off that last race, the, the two of them are going to be really tough. But remembering sitting on go from that was Derby Day, right? Derby Day or Oaks Day? Sitting on Derby. go. Derby. Uh, sitting on go was Derby Day. Yeah, yeah. Air Force Day. Because yeah. I remember interviewing Corey on horseback after the race, and he was very impressed with his performance in there. Really? It, it was definitely not a fluke. It wasn't one of those races. Well, you know, the race just fell apart up front. It just set up for him. No, he he he's a runner. I mean, he's tenacious. That's Alpha, like go right? back and look at his yeah go back and look at his maiden win at Ellis Park. I mean oh, he I comes from well off the pace. Yeah, he was live that day. He had a, an entry maiden there that, that day too, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, sitting on go is definitely live. Uh, if Jackie's warrior doesn't deliver. I think uh, sitting on go has a big chance. Yeah, I agree. Okay, Donna, uh, 
we appreciate your time as always. Well, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we certainly did. Uh, just like sitting <laughs> on goes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, Donna, we thank you for your time. We, we absolutely look forward to seeing you on the Breeders' Cup telecast as we always do every year. Uh, Alan, any parting thoughts before we let Donna go? Oh, well, we got to mention the right to ride thing again. Uh, the, the right to ride exhibit is going to be fantastic. I can't, I can't wait to take my daughters out to see that oh, exhibit. Oh, good. I'd and, love to hear that. Uh, yes, and uh, my youngest daughter, whose birthday is Saturday, uh, she's got plans, but we're we're going to take her out. She is going to absolutely love that, and I'm looking forward to it. See all those. Uh, see, there's some female jockeys from the past whose names stick in my head show up uh, show up with some exhibits. And I saw your I saw your cardboard cutout, Donna. That's that's that that's a really nice likeness of you. I hope you're happy with it. <laughs> well, I'll see. I'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, have fun. That's that should be great. That's a great honor. We're really happy for you. Yeah, okay. well, thank you. I'm honored to be in there. Uh, a lot of great women who went before me. All right, Donna, thank you very much, and, and good luck to you on a successful Breeders' Cup. All right, thanks, CC. Thanks, Alan. You got it. Wow, that was uh, that was great, uh, Alan. We've we've been blessed to have a bunch of really really nice guests that have you know they've shared their time with us, and uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, that was one of my favorite interviews. Yeah, I, I can't say enough. Thank Donna and, and all the guests we've had. It's been one of the uh, pleasures of doing this podcast is getting to talk to so many great people. And we've been blessed. They've all been wonderful, very charitable with their time. And we knew Donna would be great, and she uh, exceeded expectations. But I think everybody everybody knows that about her anyway. So we really, really appreciate having her on. Speaking of charitable, I'm probably going to make a donation to Keeneland this oh. Saturday. It's, it's a 10-race card. And I got a feeling I'm probably going to be giving away a lot of money because I, I find this card very difficult. Uh, the highlight is race nine. It's a Lexus Raven run stakes, $200,000. It's for the three-year-old fillies, and it's uh, it's a loaded field. Uh, probably maybe a standout favorite. But, uh, Alan, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this card for a minute. Let's go to race five. I think uh, there's, there's a horse in here that you might like. Uh, the favorite is number 12, Great Island, who just broke his maiden at Churchill, going a mile and the 16th on the grass. And that's for Chad Brown. He's going to be ridden by Tyler Gaffleone. Uh, this race, it's a, an allowance, an, an A other than, mile and a 16th, also on the grass. Uh, Alan, uh, who who you like here in race five? Well, I would like uh, for you to give me uh, some of that dough you won today, folks, because he's being modest again. He's being modest. He hit the pick four today at Keeneland with the 50-to-1 shot in the first leg. So I'm going to ask Mr. Broadus for a loan. And then I'm going to play exactus in this race, which I think this is not much of a race. I think there's a standout in here, and I think it is the favorite. Great Island for Chad Brown. Uh, this horse last year ran a big set. He was really highly touted last year at Keeneland. We were there that day and ran a, a good second to Mean Mary. Mean Mary got away from him. Mean Mary is turning one heck of a stakes horse. So they lay this horse off, comes back at Churchill. She she wins in her four-year-old debut for Chad Brown. Tyler Gaffleon, Tyler Gaffleon picks the horse to ride again today and i know it's the, the 12 hole but there's not much in the race if the horse is as special as i think the horse may eventually be i think uh she's the one to beat the only two i would use with her maybe uh more than usual for brad cox uh and perhaps i hear you for michael stidham who ran poorly last time but might have been too close to the pace the horses ran too well prior to that not to use the horse here so give me great island with a little touch of more than unusual, and I hear you. Do you have an opinion, sir? I, 
I don't have a very good opinion, but I, I, I let's talk about number seven. I hear you. I, I like that fact that the trainer Michael Stidham is bringing this horse back off a short break, 15 days after showing nothing in, in her first Keeneland start. Uh, that was her fourth lifetime start. Uh, she was, yeah, she went off two to one. And, I thought the horse run much better last time. And yeah. I think it's just too close to the pace or something. I'm not sure what happened. I think uh, I, I, that's a good sign. I mean, I think obviously the horse is doing well. So, you know, that, that's a horse you probably want to include in your exotics. And let's talk about number six, Siamese. You have any feeling on this filly? She's a kitten's joy filly for Brendan Walsh. And this is one uh, another one of those Brendan Walsh horses that took a lot of money in their in their u.s debut and you know uh, I'm, the other one i'm thinking of ran ran off the board in the phoenix stakes uh, early in the keeneland meeting right. this 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 filly went off seven to five and didn't show a whole lot so i don't know where that money's coming from but uh you think she's got a shot here i thought she had a shot last time we discussed this horse on the pot a few weeks ago and it ran at church on a bad allowance field that was not not a great allowance for the Churchill. Of course, we know the Churchill races were not that uh, not as deep as they usually are at the end of the September meet. Uh, the horse made a little move, but honestly didn't run that well. I guess maybe you can make a case being second time in America for Brendan Walsh, and the field not being that strong, the horse could figure. I'm not going to use it over Great Island, but uh, you know, if you want to play the horse from a bounce back standpoint, I get that. But I just did not like the field that, that uh, she ran against last time. Okay, let's fast forward to race seven. This is the start of the late pick four. And this this late pick four is very contentious. And it, and it leads off with a two-year-old filly made in special weight going the beard course of about seven furlongs. We're going to have to have a guest on to talk about how they named the beard course. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think it's somebody from Keeneland's past, uh, I believe, but uh, don't hold me to that. So uh, I want to talk about the three horse, three tipsy chicks for Ian Wilkes, ridden by Julian Leperu. Uh, the only thing, you know, I mean, th- this horse should improve second time out. She ran on Oaks Day behind a, a really nice filly named Travel Column and a next out winner named Off We Go that we were tipped on back back on Oaks Day. Uh, and Off We Go came back to Breaker Maiden to Keeneland, impressively. Uh, this filly is a daughter of Medaglia Doro out of the stakes-winning win, stakes mare On Fire Baby. On Fire Baby was trained by Gary Hartledge, and I believe she won some grade ones, if I'm not mistaken. And she was a terror here locally. Uh, I'm I'm expecting uh, a forward move uh, after this start on Oaks Day. Uh, Wilkes shipped her out to Skylight Training Center, and and he tends to do that. He'll give a horse a race and and ship him to Skylight, and then they'll come back and they'll they'll run well. So you know, it's six to one's probably probably low, but that extra distance, um, you know, the seven furlongs and I think it's 184 feet. That that should serve this filly well. I think she'll be closing at the end. And if she doesn't win here, she'll it might set up for a for a victory at Churchill uh, going yeah. forward. One thing uh, I will say, the, the name Three Tipsy Chicks, it's going to be a lot of fun anyway, right? I mean, it's a great name. So absolutely, yeah, I agree with that. So and you know maybe another filly you want to look at here is a second time starter for Grand Motion, uh, moving from turf to dirt. When we've been talking about all the Kentucky Downs horses that have been winning the Keeneland, this is another one that 
she made her first start at uh, Kentucky Downs going six and a half furlongs on the turf. Really has more of a dirt pedigree. She's by Nyquist out of an aptitude mare. I don't think the mare has produced a whole lot. But Nyquist is, is off to a good start at stud in his first crop. I think uh, the number 11 thinking is uh, is is one one to use here. So, you know, uh, I'm not telling you to bet any certain horse here, but uh, those are two to watch, the the three trip three tipsy chicks and the 11 thinking. Uh, let's talk one, about uh, – Can I ask you something real quick about this race? I ask you something here real quick. Uh, refresh me with, with thinking. Royal Approval, the horse that uh, beat thinking by six and a half lengths apparently and came back and won his next – who is that uh, – who is that horse? I, I don't remember the race that well. Do you remember the, who Royal Approval is? I don't off the top of my head. I'm looking it up right now, though. Um, uh, it's early in the meet. Uh, but anyway, I, I didn't want to get you sidetracked there. But, I mean, the horse came right back to me. Is that a – not Clement. Maybe it is Clement. Wesley Ward. Wow. Wesley Ward. Wesley Ward. Yeah. Three Chimneys Farm owns the horse. Uh, cool. She she came back and won the matron stakes on October 11th. That's a, I think that's a six furlong race on the turf at Belmont. So okay, all right. That makes uh, sense. So there you go, key race. Yeah, key race indeed. Uh, in in uh, for number eleven thinking. So uh, let's go to race eight. This is a mile and eighth on the turf. Three years old and upper, which have never won ten thousand dollars three times, other than maiden claiming yada yada yada. The favorite is number two. The morning line favorite is number two. Don't blame Rocket. Two to one. For Norm Cassie and Tyler Gaffleone, uh, this horse is on a bit of a losing streak, going back to his victory in January at Fairgrounds. And he, he got on a roll, but you know since then he, he's just been facing probably better. Uh, I think uh, we probably go deeper in this race, right? Oh yeah, I'm not taking. I don't blame Rocket tonight, horse. I'm not taking him at two to one. I, I think that's too low. I think you can go a lot of different ways in this race. Midnight Tea Time seven to two. I'm not taking him at seven to two either. Or her, I should say. It is him. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd use a few in here. I would have to have uh, maybe Hierarchy on my ticket, a horse I've talked about on here before. His best race came in a mile and an eighth. He's backing out of the Kentucky Turf Club. There's no Ark Lower Red Knight or Zulu Alpha in here. So my top selection would be Hierarchy, but I, I wouldn't single. I'd have to use a few in here. But uh, Temple Temple uh, raises my eyebrow a little bit too. But at 10 to 1, I'd, I'd look at Hierarchy. He'd have to up his game a little bit to win the race, but you know it's all about finding value. So I'd look that way for Corey Lannery. Yeah, I'd give a nod to the to the number seven Corellia. He was in the Sword Dancer at, uh, last time Saratoga at mile and a half, and he faced the likes of Channel Maker, Cross Border, Aquaphobia. I think that race was a throwout. That was on a yeah. soft course. It, uh, I think Saratoga took a lot of rain either that day or the day before. And, you know, I, I would give this horse a mulligan. He'll he'll come back, and I think he's got a shot here. Uh, the race may be too short for him, though. But, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, he he's worth inclusion, along with the, the, the ones you mentioned. And then, of course, the favorite. And the four-horse midnight tea time probably has a chance, too, although he's he seems to be allergic to winning. He's, he's just three out of 26 lifetime with eight seconds and seven-thirds. Uh, but, the, yeah, the, I, think, I think we're on the right horses there. Uh, so let's talk about – the feature of the, the of the weekend, the Lexus Raven Run Stakes is Grade Two for the top three-year-old fillies, uh, sprinting going seven furlongs, and 
the standout favorite here is number five, Venetian Harbor. She's seven to five on the morning line. And, and let's talk about her for a minute. A little bit of controversy about her in her last start at Saratoga in the test stakes where she ran up against the Bob Baffert trained Gamine, who would later did maybe go off the favorite in the uh, Kentucky Oaks. Uh, I think the owner of the horse uh, went to Twitter to, uh, to, to make his complaint. He, he wanted – he wanted uh, Joel Rosario to, to push the horse forward instead of, you know, he kept he, he kept the filly in a stranglehold probably for he the did. first quarter mile. Uh, you know, I, I kind of agree with him. I mean, he I think his complaint was that uh, Rosario didn't really want to tackle Gamine early because, you know, that Rosario rides a lot for Baffert. So if, if he if he drove Gamine into the ground, then uh, – Baffert might not give him some some mounts in uh, some some of these future three year old races. So yeah, I, I I can uh, I can sympathize with the owner here. Uh, Alan, uh, look, there appears to be more speed in this event. Uh, Venetian Harbor is one of the quicker fillies in the race, but uh, what's this early pace scenario going to be like? I think there's a lot of pace in the race. Uh, to, to me, the Raven Run always seems to be won by horses rallying from the outside. And so with all the pace in the race, of course, Venetian Harbor might simply be the speed of the speed. Uh, I'd be looking for something to come from off of them. There's not a whole lot of options in here. Uh, I mean, you've got the Ian Wilkes horse on the inside. Uh, one of our favorites, Four Graces, might be up against it from a post position and the pace standpoint. Oh, the horse is tough as nails. Kind of an iron horse, three-year-old filly, because this is their seventh start, and the horse fires every time. Uh, so, I mean – how am I going to go in this race? I, I might give a shot at 15 to one. It's a reach. Uh, wish we could ask Donna for her opinion on this one. Cause I could use some help. I'll, I'll try fair maiden for Owen Hardy. I, I like the comeback race, even though it's only a four horse race. Uh, the horse can be 25, 30 to one, but sometimes this race blows up. The Raven run does, uh, you know, is, is this horse good enough to beat the likes of Venetian Harbor and four races? Probably not, but, um, this is about making money, right? And this would make you some money if it were to come in. Yeah, I don't see any way that four graces can can last from that two hole where she's one of the quickest fillies in the race, but she's going to be hooked by Venetian Harbor, it looks like. I, th- I thought last time there was no way Leperu was going to try to hook. Uh, me either. Uh, me either. The, uh, the the Brad Cox filly, that, the name escapes me. Uh, Monday call. Monday call. I didn't I didn't think there was any way that she they would hook up, and, and sure enough, they did. And it led to both of them's demise. Agreed. And it led to Fort Monday Call's demise up in uh, Baltimore because the horse did not re- respond at, off that race. Yeah, she looked awful. You know, maybe the same effect on four graces here. I mean, it, it has been a long campaign. This is her seventh start of the year, but this is going back to March 1st. You know, this time of the year, you've got to start watching these these fillies that have, or well, any horse that has a long campaign. It, uh, it, you know, they're trying to get these these horses to the Breeders' Cup. And they start to tail off at this this point of the year. So maybe maybe it's time to look at a fresh horse. And your horse is one that I like. Your filly, Fair Maiden. The other one I like is number four, Finite, for uh, Steve Aspewson and Winchell Thoroughbreds. Uh, this is a daughter of Munnings. And let's make no bones about it. She was absolutely terrible in her comeback start at Kentucky yeah. Downs, Music City Stakes. The fact, and I'm just getting in, I'm crawling, crawling into the trainer's mind here, the fact that they bring her back in this spot tells me that maybe, maybe they like her a little bit more than they're letting on. Maybe, you know, cause as bad as she was at Kentucky downs, I mean, the, the, there had to have been an excuse then maybe, or if maybe she was just short that day, 
But uh, the fact that they're bringing her back in this stakes race, I think that speaks volumes. And she's a filly that likes two turns. She can go two turns. I think this race is going to set up perfectly for her. I think there's going to be a ton of speed early on. And about the eighth pole, a lot of these, a lot of these fillies are going to get tired. And I think uh, finally going to pick up the pieces. And I've, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm with her and Fair Maiden now. If I can just find a single in one of these other races, <laughs> I'll be, uh, I'll be uh, gung ho. But uh, good luck. You know, yeah, this might be one of those deals you just have to bet this race straight up. So, uh, and then we close it out with a tough race. This is the tenth race. It's uh, three years old, which has never won two races. And I'm telling you what, these these races tend to yield surprises. I think I have to go to the go to the to the research on that. But uh, when it just seems to me that horses that run a Keeneland for, for 20,000 are cheap. So like yes. the, the non-winners, the condition yes. races, you just find the horses that aren't very good. And I, I, I just, you know, if you can spread out here and use eight or nine of them, I think, you you know, you might have a shot to shot to catch a, catch a big price. What do you think? Yeah. I, I, I mentioned before in these short fields at Keeneland in these slightly cheaper races, the more, especially when they go two turns, but even in the shorter races, and it seems like they have to go early in a card. It seems like the fourth or fifth choice wins the race all the time. And the favorites get over bet for whatever reason. And it always seems like a five, six, seven to one horse wins these type races. Uh, I haven't looked at the race that closely. I would imagine quarterback Dak would be your favorite, but you're right. And it's, it's not just this meet. It's just meet every year at Keeneland, the cheaper races, uh, have a tendency to be a bit of a dartboard type of race. So I would never take too short of a price in races such as that. And this one looks like the same same case to me. If you can point me in the direction of a winner, I'm willing to listen, sir. Well, then uh, to piggyback on what you said, like, so Churchill Downs is right around the corner. So you're going to get a lot of the top trainers are probably going to start pointing their, their best horses to, to early Churchill. You know, there's a big two-year-old day. Uh, opening weekend and I, I just think you know you're, you're getting in these type of races you're getting the second string so you know it, it you tend to get some uh some randomness in in some of these races so but it's and, uh it's a competitive pick four to say the least and the claiming prices are inflated you look you'll see a thirty thousand maiden claimer at keeneland or fifty thousand. there's a tendency even though the the, the straight maidens are fantastic the, the maiden claimers are not quite as good as some of the claiming tags actually will let you believe it as, at times. So, and in yep. the condition claimers as well. So I agree 100%. Okay. So that's, uh, that's uh, Keeneland for this weekend and we're going to wrap it up here. And, uh, before we go, well, we want to thank Donna, Donna Barton brothers. Uh, that was fantastic to get to meet her and to talk to her for a little bit. And, uh, anything else you want to, you want to, toss in the fire before we head out uh we're going to start zero now in the breeders cup i mean we're not going to we're not going to ignore keeneland or churchill in the upcoming weeks but it's time to start focusing on this uh this massive two-day breeders cup uh weekend donna gave us a, a great head start there's nobody better to ask than somebody who's ridden in the race and and, and and knows this stuff as well as she does but we're going to start zeroing a little bit not just for the our listeners but for our own benefit as well well yeah i'm in it for myself i don't care about you Let's get, oh. <laughs> let's get that straight right now so anyway all right so that's uh that's all for this week uh thank you for joining us as always if you've made it this far we we greatly greatly appreciate it uh last thing i guess churchill's going to reopen for spectators I, I we we need to add that in hopefully if uh if there's anybody listening uh, I'll, I'll definitely be out there at some point 
we'd love to meet uh, meet our listeners for sure. Uh, so on behalf of Mr. Alan Schneider, I'm CC Broadus. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> <laughs>